Hey, We the People listeners. As the 2016 presidential campaign hits overdrive and the Supreme Court begins another round of oral arguments, we invite you to submit your questions about the Constitution, the Court, and more to Jeff Rosen, host of We the People and president of the National Constitution Center. Questions must be submitted no later than midnight on Sunday, January 24th. You can tweet them at us using the hashtag AskJeffNCC. You can also send us a message on Facebook or go to Constitution Daily, our blog, and submit your question anonymously. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we take a close look at the free speech and press clauses of the First Amendment, which state, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Joining me to discuss this most hotly contested and deeply treasured of constitutional protections are the nation's leading First Amendment scholars, both of whom wrote about these clauses for the National Constitution Center's wonderful new interactive constitution, which I want you to check out online at constitutioncenter.org. Jeffrey Stone is the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and Eugene Volokh is the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at the UCLA School of Law. Jeff, Eugene, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. Jeff, you asked the following question in your essay on free speech on the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution. Uh, to what extent and under what circumstances can the government constitutionally restrict uh, speech? Basically, tell us what was the core purpose of the First Amendment when it was passed? Well, the core goal of the First Amendment is to ensure a, a well-functioning democracy, um, that uh, in a political um, system in which individual citizens are ultimately to make the fundamental decisions about um, who to elect, who should represent them, how they feel about governmental policies, uh, it's essential that those citizens have access to information and ideas and opinions that enable them to be well-informed. And to the extent that the government um, has the ability to censor the ideas or information or opinions that individuals can hear, uh, then it has the ability to distort that entire process, um, to turn it to its own purposes, and to subvert the very idea of democracy. I think that's the, the absolutely core goal of the First Amendment, although there are other values as well. Thanks so much for that uh, concise statement. Uh, Eugene, do you have anything to add or disagree with in Jeff's uh, characterization? So I think uh, that Jeff is quite right. Uh, I will also add that uh, I think the framers understood the freedom of speech and of the press as promoting not just democracy, but uh, what we today may call the search for truth more broadly. You see this, for instance, in the letter from Continental Congress uh, to, the to the inhabitants of Quebec, uh, trying to get them involved uh, in the revolutionary spirit back in 1774, where they talk about the importance of the freedom of the press uh, uh, um, as uh, including not just uh, 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 communication of sentiments on the administration of government, but also advancement of truth, science, morality, and arts. Uh, and I think the people uh, of that era understood that they were living in a period of uh, 
probably unprecedented, at the very least, uh, uh, very great uh, uh, scientific uh, and technological development. And they, I think, quite correctly credited uh, uh, the freedom of expression for that, uh, the freedom to express yourself on scientific matters without worrying about an inquisition, for example. Uh, the freedom to express yourself on morality without uh, without worrying about the established church uh, uh, suppressing you. Uh, so I think uh, uh, self-government is a very important goal of the First Amendment, but I think uh, what is now called the search for truth more broadly uh, it, uh, was understood as an important goal as well. Wonderful. Well, I can't resist another beat on this. Jeff, uh, there's a great uh, debate between Holmes and Brandeis about the purposes of the First Amendment. Holmes talks more about the search for truth in the marketplace of ideas, which Eugene mentioned. And Brandeis talks more about democratic self-government, which you stressed. But there's also a notion of individual autonomy and freedom of thought and opinion and the freedom to think as you will and write as you think. Uh, can uh, a concern with autonomy be rooted in the framing era as well? Yes, I think that's that's a third element of the larger sense of what the First Amendment uh, can be seen as as designed to um, promote. That is the notion that there's some uh, aspects of individuality, of autonomy, of of human dignity uh, that the state should should respect. And one of those is the freedom to speak one's mind. Um, to express one's thoughts, one's views, one's values, one's opinions, one's beliefs, and that for the state to intrude upon that freedom um, in itself uh, interferes with individual liberty in a way that also was of concern to the framework. So I think the, under, the underlying values and purposes of the First Amendment are quite rich um, and expansive. And the Supreme Court, I think it's fair to say, has in its jurisprudence over the years embraced essentially all of those. That is, it, it, it rarely, if ever, suggests that speech is not protected by the First Amendment because it is not political, for example, um, uh, or because it's not individually self-fulfilling. Uh, so basically, the court has, has incorporated all of these different values into, into a, a fairly rich jurisprudence um, in order to give meaning to the, to the guarantees of the First Amendment. Wonderful. Uh, Eugene, in your common statement with Jeff, you give a great summary of the doctrine about free speech, and you talk about how the Supreme Court has said that government can restrict speech under a less demanding standard in about three circumstances, in cases of low-value uh, speech, in cases when uh, the speaker's in a special relationship to the government, like an employee or a student, or when it's not restricting the content or the message of the speech. Tell us a little bit more about the categories of low-value speech that the Supreme Court has said can be restricted. Sure. So uh, the Supreme Court has, uh, <coughs> excuse me, has stated that uh, there's certain kinds of uh, speech, generally speaking, ones that have been traditionally understood as unprotected, that are not protected or not fully protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and uh, uh, the tradition part is pretty important here. Somebody once said, "Law is the only phrase in uh, the only discipline in which the phrase now that's an original idea is a pejorative." Uh, judges care a lot about tradition, some more so than others, but all of them care about it to a considerable extent. So, for example, when it comes to obscenity, hardcore pornography, uh, it was Justice Brennan back in the late 1950s who wrote that uh, uh, the, um, uh, there's an exception to the First Amendment for obscenity, in part because of this long-standing tradition uh, of treating such speech as different. Likewise, there's a long-standing tradition of uh, 
uh, uh, treating uh, defamation as constitutionally uh, unprotected. And uh, the same goes for some other categories, such as face-to-face insults likely to start a fight, so-called fighting words. Um, another example is certain kinds of speech uh, uh, that, that is seen as sufficiently closely related to the commission of a crime, like soliciting a, a crime or threatening a crime or speaking in the course of uh, uh, discussing with uh, your fellow criminals how to best commit the crime. Uh, that, too, has been seen as uh, potentially constitutionally unprotected. One important thing, though, is that in all of those areas, the Supreme Court has, uh, uh, while recognizing some degree of an, of an exception, has worked hard to make it quite narrow, uh, generally speaking, and, uh, uh, in fact, narrow it out considerably beyond its traditional zone. So the court has recognized there's been traditional lack of protection uh, for obscenity and uh, uh, for defamation, but it has uh, 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 narrowed those categories uh, quite a bit uh, so that a lot of what traditionally was punishable before today uh, is constitutionally protected. Now, one can quarrel with some or even all of those exceptions, although I think some of the exceptions, such as for true threats of violence, have to be recognized. Uh, But the fact is that the court, while it has been quite broadly protective of speech, has never taken the view that all speech is categorically protected. Even the even justices who've labeled themselves absolutists, like Justice Black, uh, have uh, uh, have uh, recognized uh, uh, expressly or implicitly that certain kinds of categories of speech are constitutionally unprotected. Great. Well, um, Jeff, Eugene mentioned uh, true threats, which are traditionally unprotected, and you talk in your separate statement in the interactive Constitution about how the Supreme Court held in the Brandenburg case that speech that's intended to and likely to incite imminent violence uh, is unprotected. Let's turn to hate speech, which is such a contested topic nowadays. Uh, There are calls at campuses from Yale to Missouri and elsewhere uh, to create safe spaces where students can be immune from speech that causes them emotional injury uh, on the basis of race. Uh, are these calls consistent with the First Amendment? And in public universities, might the Supreme Court uphold these uh, calls for safe spaces or not? So first, since we're talking about the First Amendment, it's important to draw a distinction um, between public universities and private universities. Private universities are not uh, governed by the Constitution, um, and they're not governed by the First Amendment. And from a constitutional perspective, they're free to do whatever they wish. Um, so it's only government uh, organizations and entities uh, that are restricted by the First Amendment. Um, so that's the first distinction that's important to note. Um, the second is that you mentioned safe spaces. Well, safe spaces may or may not be a good idea, but in and of themselves, they don't involve restrictions on speech as such. Um, and therefore, uh, one might criticize them because they're inconsistent with certain values, but they don't violate the First Amendment. Um, the, the key issue, I think, would be whether a, a public university uh, would decide to, say, prohibit any uh, faculty member or student or member of the community from advocating uh, in in public discourse on campus uh, the view that, um, I'll say, African-Americans are inferior or that um, uh, or that uh, Muslims uh, uh, should not be accorded equal uh, equal rights on campus um, because those views are deemed hateful. And uh, I think the clear uh, 
doctrine at the moment, with which I agree, is that in, in ordinary public discourse, the Supreme Court would never accept the proposition that such expression can be restricted, uh, except perhaps in circumstances where there was a clear imminent danger of grave harm following from the speech in a very specific factual circumstance, um, highly unlikely situation. Um, and in a public university, I think the courts would apply very much the same approach in terms of the public type of discourse within a university and would hold that um, if Ohio State University or, or University of Missouri uh, was simply to prohibit the kind of expression I was describing a moment ago, um, that the courts would strike that down as unconstitutional. The harder issues involve um, uh, where the suppression is not directed at um, ideas, but where it's addressed, for example, at language. Uh, so um, imagine, for example, that a professor in a classroom, in a, in a way that is completely unrelated to the substance of his teaching, um, calls um, African-American students or Jewish students uh, or gay students uh, by epithets. Um, and the university says, you can't do that. That's not professional. That's not consistent with teaching. That would pose a, a very different question. I think courts would probably uphold discipline of faculty members on that extreme side of the question. Uh, Eugene, uh, your thoughts on the question of restricting uh, hate speech by professors. In your separate statement, you talk about a tension between hostile environment uh, law which has uh, developed un under federal anti-discrimination statute and the First Amendment. In 2013, the Departments of Justice and Education broadened the definition of hostile environment and said that universities have to provide students a non-discriminatory educational environment as harassment of a student based on race, color, or national origin can deny educational opportunities. Tell us, in practice, on the ground, is this new directive being used to suppress uh, hate speech on campus, and how? what sort of conflicts might we see in the future? Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry about that. Over the last uh, 30 years or so, there have been various attempts to restrict speech on campus. Uh, uh, some of them have come from campuses. Most of them have come from campuses themselves. I think some of them have been pressured in some measure uh, by the federal government uh, uh, through directives such as the one you mentioned. Uh, how much of a role the federal government is currently playing in this uh, uh, um, I'm not sure. It may be that the, that uh, uh, that most of the campus speech codes that have been proposed really are chiefly uh, coming from the universities themselves. Uh, but it does look like the federal government is trying to get in the act, and that means that it's not just that universities could uh, the, the federal government's view. It's not just universities could impose speech codes on their students. But they must impose speech codes on their students or be in violation of anti-discrimination law and lose access to student, uh, their students would lose access to student loans and so on and so forth. be essentially a death sentence for most universities. Um, uh, so the government is trying to pressure uh, universities to institute certain kinds of speech codes in, in this respect, I think. Uh, I, I'm not sure to what extent it has succeeded so far, but that is, I think, an ominous development. It's ominous in, in part because if you look at all of the things that the Supreme Court has told us uh, about what is permissible in speech restrictions, uh, many of them are being flouted by uh, this, the logic of this hostile environment harassment law, which extends not just into universities, but also into workplaces, and into places of public accommodation, and so on and so forth. 
Uh, for example, the court has uh, uh, generally uh, insisted on clarity when it comes to speech restrictions to prevent an undue chilling effect and to prevent discriminatory enforcement. Well, here you have restrictions that say things like uh, that the university has to restrict speech um, if it is severe or pervasive enough to create a hostile or uh, uh, abusive or offensive uh, uh, environment. What kind of speech qualifies? What kind of political advocacy qualifies? Who knows? Uh, the Supreme Court has also said that you can't impose viewpoint-based restrictions, especially on uh, advocacy in political, religious, social, and other issues. And yet these kinds of campus speech codes, uh, uh, as well as similar analogs with workplace harassment law imposed by the government, ha have routinely been used uh, as justifications for restricting speech because its ideological context, because its political message uh, is, uh, uh, is perceived uh, as offensive. Uh, so, yeah, I think that hostile environment harassment law is a serious uh, uh, threat to free speech, and it's one that some, some courts have been allowing to go forward, uh, but other courts, I think, have correctly recognized that it needs to be reined in uh, uh, in order to avoid a First Amendment violation. Um, now, when it comes to the particular kinds of speech codes, I, I, uh, I think that uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff and I agree on, on pretty, almost everything. I would take a slightly different focus, though, uh, as, to, as to a few things. I, first, I think that uh, student speech outside of the classroom in newspapers, in demonstrations, in tweets, and so on and so forth, I think has, is fully protected by the First Amendment. The government can't expel students uh, for that, even if it involves epithets or whatever else. Uh, likewise, I think that there's a that university professor speech outside the classroom uh, uh, is constitutionally protected if you the professor writes op-eds and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and now that's a little bit more complicated because the government acting as employer tends to have broader power over the speech of its employees. But I do think, uh, and there's some good case law on this from lower courts. Uh, I do think that when it comes to uh, professors whose job it is to say often controversial things, uh, I think that uh, uh, the, the speech outside campus should be protected, uh, outside the classroom should be protected. Now, what complicates matters is what happens inside the classroom. Uh, from, this, from the perspective of student speech, for example, if a student says something that is insulting to another student, whether it has to do with race or religion or anything else, I'm going to call them out on it, and if the student keeps doing it, I'm just not going to call on the student. When it comes to the classroom itself, uh, that is a place for where the professor orchestrates um, a, uh, a discussion. Uh, and what is excluded from that discussion is as important as what is included, just as a newspaper editor's decisions to exclude or include uh, material in a newspaper are important aspects of the speech that the newspaper is trying to generate. So I do think that inside the classroom, uh, the rules have to be different, and again, not just having to do with so-called hate speech, whatever that might mean. Likewise, when the professor is speaking, when I speak in the classroom, I'm speaking to kind of a captive audience in some respects, especially for a required class, uh, of students that are supplied to me. I'm taking advantage of this captive audience. What's more, I'm being paid precisely to speak. I think, for example, my dean, if, he, if she wanted to, could tell me, look, here are the subjects. Here are the topics we expect you to teach in your First Amendment law class. She doesn't, because generally speaking, deans take a hands-off approach to this. But if, but if she wants to say, we insist that you teach these particular topics because we want to standardize the curriculum, I think they'd have the right to do that because the classroom is not really entirely my space. In fact, it's not even largely my space. It's the school space. Um, likewise, I think, uh, although I 
things get more complicated here. If the uh, uh, dean learns that I'm insulting students, and whether I'm insulting them for reasons of race or religion, or for, for any other reason at all, let's say that I'm, uh, I, I'm calling people stupid and idiots for getting an answer wrong, and the dean says, you know, that's not conducive to having a good conversation in class. That's not conducive to learning. I do think that... Uh, I think that the university would have some greater power uh, to restrict what I say, again, uh, in the classroom where I'm doing what I'm paid to do to students who are assembled by the university uh, for me to teach. Uh, now, what the possible guidelines, limits on uh, university power there are, I'm not sure. I suspect that they have less to do with the First Amendment and more to do with principles of academic ethics and academic freedom uh, and, uh, uh, and even handedness. Uh, uh, but I do think that the university would probably have pretty substantial authority under the First Amendment, especially if it exercises the authority in a clear enough way to tell me what to teach and how to teach. Uh, thank you for all that, Jeff. Eugene said a lot of interesting stuff. Anything that you disagree with in his characterization of the clash between the logic of hostile environment law and the First Amendment, and how do you see this playing out on campus moving forward? I, I don't actually disagree with, with anything Eugene said. I, I, I guess I'd, I'd add a few thoughts. Um, one is that I think it's, I think it's important and this is not so much a First Amendment issue, but I think it's important for educational institutions, for universities and colleges in particular, um, to make clear to their students that the purpose of education is to prepare those students for to be effective citizens in the real world after they leave the educational environment, and that um, protecting them from exposure to ideas that they find uncomfortable or offensive or problematic is not a responsible way of preparing them uh, for what they have to deal with in the future. And that the notion of shielding students from what students regard as hate speech or offensive speech or whatever, I think is a betrayal of the responsibilities of educational institutions and that um, it, is, it is our responsibility to, um, to make clear that, that we want to protect academic freedom uh, to the fullest degree possible, not only because it's central to the um, search for truth within a university, which it's, itself is absolutely the core of our institutions, but beyond that, because that's a central part of the educational process in preparing our students to be effective, because in the real world, they're not going to be shielded from unpleasant ideas and offensive ideas. And I want my students to know how to cope with those by being able to address them, to answer them, to respond to them. And that's what our job is. And I think that universities need to be clear on that. Um, and I think we're being tested at the moment. Uh, and it's an important moment for the, the ways in which universities um, uh, understand their, their responsibilities. Uh, eloquently said, uh, Eugene Jeff says that universities are being tested at the moment. Um, how are they meeting that test, and are you optimistic or pessimistic that uh, professors and university leaders will defend traditional First Amendment values in the face of pressures to the contrary? Well, there are a lot of universities out there and a lot of people out there, and some of them I think are doing very well. Uh, I think Jeff Stone, I think, uh, uh, has a, uh, is uh, uh, to be credited with uh, helping the University of Chicago and other, and other universities do well. Uh, um, uh, so, uh, so I think uh, some are rising to the occasion, some are falling down on the job. Uh, and uh, even when they're not instituting speech codes that violate the First Amendment, I do think that they're 
uh, saying things and doing things that uh, uh, are intended to deter a certain kind of uh, um, certain kinds of speech and to shut down uh, debate. And part of the thing that most bothers me, in fact, actually, is some of the logic of the argument, some of the language of the argument that I do think uh, uh, is a very bad omen for the future. One of the is the uh, the term safe spaces. Now, I'm a big believer in safe spaces. I think all of us should be safe everywhere, and especially on campus, from people beating us up, from people vandalizing our property, from people threatening to beat us up. We certainly should be safe from that, and that's the standard understanding of safe that I uh, learned when I was growing up, safety in the sense of basically physical safety. On the other hand, if safe space means safe from ideas that we find offensive or ideas that challenge our identity group affiliations, well, I think that, that even calling that safety uh, trying to borrow some of the uh, some of the moral force of uh, uh, protection against violence and turning into protection against ideas and against speech and uh, 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 against messages that that some people uh, some people find uh, find offensive. Uh, that is something that I think uh, is pretty dangerous for the future, and I think some universities are reinforcing that and uh, and uh, potentially making the problems even worse. Uh, so, you know, am I optimistic? I'm temperamentally an optimistic person, I think. Things over time will probably get better, but uh, over the last few years, I've been, I have been seeing them get worse. Um, uh, I remember after the first wave of campus speech codes was, in fact, struck down by uh, uh, courts in the late 1980s and in the 1990s, when uh, people would ask me, oh, what about all of this, uh, all of these speech restrictions on campus? As if you know that those are kind of exaggerated. There are not a lot of them happening. Occasionally they happen. They get batted down by the courts. Now I don't think I can say that. Over the last three, four years, I've been seeing a lot more attempts to uh, suppress, either through formal coercion uh, or through other means, to suppress uh, um, speech at universities that really needs to be there. Can, can Jeff, I, can I add please, I, please, please do add, but I, and I also want to ask you, because you're really one of the most uh, eloquent defenders of free speech on campus, along with Eugene, uh, perhaps you can tell us why these calls for safe spaces are arising now. You're a great historian of the First Amendment and have written about previous errors of calls for to suppress free speech. Why now? That's exactly what I was going to say. That's great. Um, and so I, I think what's changed is two things. Um, f- first, What's changed is the students themselves um, are now demanding the right to be free from an environment in which they feel um, unvalued, uncomfortable, um, and unwanted. And, And instead of students traditionally demanding of universities that their free speech rights be protected, now we have a generation of students uh, demanding that others' free speech be restricted in order to protect them. And and, and related to that is the argument for um, prohibiting hate speech in the past tended to focus on the notion that hate speech conveys a bad idea and that we should not allow people to uh, advance bad and hateful ideas. And now the argument is it's slightly different and in some ways more sympathetic. It's, it's not so much that these are bad ideas that will persuade other people to be racist or sexist or homophobic. It's rather that we've become more sensitive to the 
reality that there are students at our universities who are being put at a significant disadvantage relative to their peers because of the existence of this speech, which targets those subgroups in ways that make it much more difficult, arguably, for them to succeed and to perform in this environment. And that there's a kind of inequality on fairness to allowing the speech that is part of the justification now for wanting to restrict it. And I think that it's the combination of those two changes that has led to the shift we're seeing in universities. One of them is the students themselves demanding this. Um, and the second is a sense on the part of university administrators that there's a better reason to take this seriously than there used to be. That if the argument is ban the speech because it's a bad idea, it's pretty easy for universities to say, no, we don't do that. But when the argument is that ban the speech because it is hurtful to our own students and making it more difficult for them to succeed in the academic environment, academic administrators are more inclined to take that seriously. And again, I think the answer is still not to yield to it, but I think that explains why it's a much more difficult argument at the moment than it was uh, five, ten years ago. Interesting. Uh, Eugene, to what degree has the rise of social media contributed to the new polarized debate? Uh, there have been plenty of studies about the way that social media leads people to take more extreme positions uh, than they had been inclined to and suppresses minority views. In your experience and as a scholar, is that contributing to this current free speech debate on campus? I don't think so. I don't think social media tends to unbalance suppress minority views. In fact, if anything, uh, social media makes it more possible for minority views to be expressed uh, because it, uh, it used to be if you wanted to promote your view uh, uh, to people outside of the earshot, you'd have to get uh, the uh, uh, some newspaper to run it or some television station to broadcast it, and those were understandably uh, biased towards the center because that's where their audience was, that's where their market was. Uh, now you can actually speak out um, uh, on your own, and that primarily promotes minority views. I mean, uh, some of them may be extremist minority views that we don't like, uh, but uh, but some of them, uh, are, but but uh, all of them are. Um, excuse me. Many of them are views that were historically held by a minority of the population, and that now, for the first time, are easily being broadcast. Uh, I think that the problem is actually somewhat different, and it's related to what Jeff is saying. But I think uh, it's partly a matter of the universities and um, certain movements on creation. And one way of thinking about it is to think about the experience of devoutly religious students at universities. Now, in some universities, they may be the majority, including in some public universities. But in many, they've long been a small minority. And, you know, a minority that probably recognizes that uh, many of the students around them don't have any real respect for devout religion, uh, especially devout, say, um, uh, evangelical Christianity. Uh, so my sense is that those students have gone to universities that had to be around people who both mock religion, say things that are blasphemous, and sometimes say things that are derogatory towards not just religion, but members of the religion, like, oh, evangelical Christians, they're the ones who are uh, ruining the country, trying to force their ideas on people, trying to suppress women's right to choose, and so on and so forth. Uh, um, if you are somebody who belongs to that movement and hears yourself not just even substantively criticized, but talked about in a derogatory way, understandably, you can be kind of upset about this. But, uh, but I think the reaction that we generally had was, well, if you don't like it, argue against it, explain why your views are right. Uh, and if you don't want to do that, at least just sort of take it, 
take it in stride. Understand that uh, uh, you're going to have criticism of your views and even of your identity. You're going to hear it. But, you know, you, the, part, much of success in life is learning what to ignore. But let's say we told these students, you have a right to be, have a safe a space safe from criticism of evangelical Christianity. Uh, and when people are criticizing uh, this religion, when they're saying things that are blasphemous or saying things that are offensive to the religion or trying to incite hostility to the religion or saying things that suggest that people who adhere to this religion are morally flawed or foolish or whatever else, they're violating your civil rights. You have a right to be free from, uh, from this, kind of, uh, this kind of speech. My sense is what would happen is that those students would actually become more offended because rather than just something like, oh, this person is saying these things that I think are wrong and foolish, but, you know, sounds like he's a fool, I'm just going to ignore him. Instead of that, they're feeling this person is violating my rights. And if you ignore someone violating your rights, uh, kind of what kind of patsy are you? What kind of weakling are you for not asserting your rights and demanding that this person uh, stop and demanding that this person be suppressed? So my sense is that the more we say that certain kinds of speech, in addition to being offensive, is actually a violation of your right to have safe space, a violation of your right to be free uh, from a hostile environment based on religion and other factors. The more we say that, the more offensive that speech will be, and the more calls there will be to suppress the speech, because people who before um, found a way of tolerating it, and in fact grew as human beings in to uh, from tolerating it, uh, uh, became, became more effective arguers from knowing that they have to argue against it rather than, uh, uh, rather than suppressing it. Uh, uh, instead, they're beginning to demand more and more uh, speech restrictions. That's, what I think, what would happen if this was our reaction to speech that is hostile to, as I said, say, traditionalist uh, Christianity or evangelical Christianity or, or Catholicism or other religious groups. And I, uh, and I, uh, and I think that if people, uh, if people suggested speech codes to suppress this kind of speech, I think the reaction would be this is this is a bad idea, and it actually uh, uh, potentially will lead these uh, would lead the students from those religious groups to be more offended rather than less. Well, I think that's exactly what we've been seeing, although not with regard to speech critical of evangelical uh, Christianity, but to speech hostile to Islam, uh, speech uh, uh, hostile uh, based on sexual orientation, based on race, and so on and so forth. Uh, that uh, by telling people you have a right to be free from this kind of speech. That actually makes the speech more offensive. It makes, it, makes people uh, uh, more distracted by it. It makes it harder for them uh, to operate around it, precisely because we are saying, oh, this speech is a violation of your rights. And if instead we returned, I think, to the model that was prevalent, I think, in the free speech movement, about speech more generally, but also in the 70s and 80s, which is, look, there are lots of speech that you're going to see at the university. Some of it you'll find offensive. Some of it you'll find offensive because you're evangelical Christian or Muslim or a Jew uh, or black or gay or white or whatever else. Uh, then I think the result would actually be people being less offended and people finding it easier uh, to deal with things because they'll understand that this is just, they're expected to be able to deal with this kind of speech and they will rise to that expectation. Great. Thanks for all that. Uh, well, Jeff, let's turn from uh, hate speech on campus to radical speech online. Uh, recently, several scholars, including uh, Cass Sunstein and Eric Posner, have called for limitations on the scope of the First Amendment in light of the dangers posed to the U.S. by online radicalization messages directed at Americans. You have opposed 
These calls to narrow the scope of the Fourth Amendment in the Huffington Post tell us what kind of speech are uh, scholars like Sunstein and Posner calling to be restricted, and why do you think that's a bad thing? So my, my understanding is what they're concerned about is, is speech that essentially inflames um, individuals, Muslims, I suppose, in particular, in the United States, um, so that they will ultimately engage in various kinds of terrorist acts um, here in, in, our, in our nation, and that their view is that speech has an effect, that there are individuals who are um, moved by it, uh, to actually take the kinds of terrorist acts that we obviously do not want to see happen. And their view is speech that has the purpose and effect of doing that should be prohibited. Um, and my view of that is this is an old issue. It's a familiar one. Um, we have wrestled for many decades over the question of when speech can be permissibly restricted uh, because it has the effect of uh, inducing others to engage in illegal conduct. Uh, the Supreme Court um, initially took the view that a speech that has a bad tendency uh, can be punished. That is, if speech has the potential to lead other people to engage in socially undesirable or illegal conduct, then the speech itself can be restricted. Uh, it quickly became apparent uh, that that standard basically had a devastating effect on free speech uh, because much speech that is provocative or controversial uh, and that especially speech that criticizes the government um, can be said to lead people to violate the laws that they're being that the speaker is criticizing um, and uh, and therefore that would justify the government in suppressing all sorts of speech that particularly people in the government don't like. And over time, that led the court to to move in the direction suggested by Justice Oliver Weddle Holmes and then by Louis Brandeis and eventually uh, unequivocally endorsed by the court um, in 1969 in the Brandenburg versus Ohio case, uh, saying that before speech that uh, advocates uh, unlawful conduct can be punished, um, the government has to show that it is likely to create imminent and serious harm. Um, and that the mere fact that the speech has the potential, the capacity to produce that harm is not sufficient justification to restrict the speech. In my view, that's the right test. It's been universally acknowledged in the Supreme Court is the right test. Um, I understand the emotions that lead people to say, well, well, now we have this problem of terrorism and we should go back and change the rules and rethink them. Uh, in my view, that's just making the same mistake we made during World War I when we first used the bad tendency test during the communist era, um, McCarthy era, when we used uh, similar approaches to punish people who were basically uh, uh, condemning the government. And um, this is the same kind of, of short-term panic that leads to disastrous decisions about free speech. Uh, Eugene, your thoughts on restricting terrorist incitement speech online. And also, uh, Jeff reminds us that right now the people who have more power over free speech than any government official or Supreme Court justice may be the lawyers at Google and Facebook who are enforcing hate speech policies, which at the moment protect less speech than the First Amendment does. Should Facebook and Google change their policies so that it co coincides with the American First Amendment test? Uh, so first of all, let me just say I agree with everything that Jeff has said on this point. Uh, I think that uh, it would be a real mistake to try to suppress uh, uh, even uh, Islamist terrorist propaganda uh, um, uh, in this kind of situation. I, I think that uh, 
uh, on balance, it will do more harm than good, and it will certainly do more harm than good to, uh, to the future of American free speech, not just as to, uh, to this kind of speech, but as to many other kinds as well. One thing that we've learned is in a system built on analogy and precedent, and also on something which I call censorship envy, which is uh, that uh, uh, if uh, one uh, if uh, 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 one group of advocates uh, uh, succeed in getting a speech restriction uh, 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 enacted, others will quickly uh, quickly try to line up to get to get theirs. Uh, for all those reasons, I think that uh, it would be a very bad idea to try to uh, for the government to try to restrict the speech more here. Now, the question about private intermediaries, private media organizations, whether they were newspapers in the past or now Twitter, Facebook, uh, uh, Google even, um, uh, uh, what they should do, that's a more complicated question. Uh, historically, First Amendment law has, uh, um, has applied only to the government, uh, in part because private organizations they have their own, uh, their own um, legitimate interests in uh, in separating themselves from speech that they find uh, uh, that they find sufficiently offensive and sufficiently reprehensible, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so as a legal matter, uh, uh, the uh, private intermediaries are free to uh, restrict speech as they like, subject to, to their own personal ethical constraints and the constraints imposed by the marketplace. If they get too restrictive, people stop using their services. Um, as an ethical matter, as a moral matter, it's an interesting question. To what extent should uh, uh, these services view themselves kind of like private universities tend to view themselves as saying, look, uh, we may not be bound by the First Amendment, but uh, uh, we want to be places uh, uh, of unfettered debate, and we're going to voluntarily um, adopt First Amendment-like rules uh, for ourselves in order to preserve that. Uh, and to what extent can they say, look, uh, you know, we want to be, uh, um, uh, as uh, these services, we want to be places that seem friendly to our users. We want to, to, uh, to have a good reputation among our users. And also, personally, we as investors and as managers, we don't want to participate in spreading certain kinds of ideas that we think are wrong. I think that's a very difficult ethical question. Uh, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Great. Well, this has been something of a bipartisan uh, love fest. You've agreed on most of the things, as, as uh, two of the most distinguished civil libertarians and libertarians in the country uh, might well do. I want to end by at least flagging potential areas of disagreement uh, between uh, civil libertarians and libertarians moving forward. Um, Jeff, uh, Eugene says in his separate statement for the interactive Constitution, I think speech about elections, including speech that costs money, must remain protected, whether it's published by individuals, nonprofit corporations, labor unions, media corporations, or non-media business corporations. The post-Citizens United world is broad and complicated, of course, but tell us about potential fissures between civil libertarians and libertarians when it comes to the protection of money as speech. So I, I think um, let, let's look at the let's think about the question about regulation of political expenditures. Um, and contributions. Um, my view about that is that there are very strong First Amendment interests uh, that are involved in um, providing money for political candidates that you support. Um, and I think there are, there are two elements to that. One is that the individual um, has, a, has a right uh, to speak um, aggressively and effectively 
and to use not only his literal voice, but also his resources uh, to influence public discourse. Moreover, I think that there are very real dangers in allowing the government to intervene in that process because of the risk that elected officials will manipulate in their regulations so as to benefit themselves, either as incumbents or their own political party. And so when the government attempts to regulate in this arena, there's a great danger that the government will use that authority uh, not to serve the, the, the interests that it, it says that it's serving, but actually to serve its own uh, interest in self-perpetuating its own authority. So there's very good reason to have a demanding standard of justification before allowing the government to intervene in this context. Um, however, um, I think that that is not an absolute rule. Um, these are not viewpoint-based restrictions on speech. They don't say that you know, if you criticize the government, you can't give money, but you can if you support the government, or if you're a Republican, you can't give money. If you're a Democrat, you can. Those would be clearly, per se, unconstitutional. Here you've got basically rules that are on their face neutral with respect to the speaker's point of view. And it does seem to me that we've seen a situation emerge in which the influence and the impact of money is so deleterious, so harmful, that to the future of democracy, frankly, that I think that the state interest now is sufficiently great that courts should uphold limitations on the amount that individuals can contribute um, and can spend in behalf of political uh, candidates. Uh, it, it would be as if one had a presidential debate in which one said, okay, the, you can buy five-minute segments, and everybody would turn it off pretty quickly if, if it turned out that you know Donald Trump was buying all the time and the other candidates didn't have enough money to compete, and there was no equal time rule. That's, that's what politics has now become, and that does not make any sense at all from the perspective of trying to produce a healthy, robust, serious democratic system. And those of us who talk about the importance of free speech to serve a, a vibrant democratic system have to recognize that in this particular situation, the impact of money has, has seriously threatened the meaning of democracy. It is it has alienated the vast majority of citizens who feel as if they have no impact. It's given far greater impact to a handful of people because they're billionaires than has ever been possible historically before. And it's completely distorted the behavior of elected officials. Um, if you go to Washington and testify before a Senate or a House uh, hearing, as I've had occasion to do, uh, on like 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, now they're not even in the room. Um, I asked one senator, where is everybody? The answer is they're all on the back talking to their donors instead of doing their jobs. So in every way, this is destructive. And I think that um, it is absolutely essential that government um, step in here and put um, a constraint on the extent to which uh, a handful of people in the United States can dictate the future of American democracy. Uh, Eugene, your response. Uh, so uh, first, and I think on this point, uh, uh, Jeff and I uh, uh, quite agree. Uh, first, uh, some people frame this as a uh, question of, is money speech? Or they say money is not speech. But that's not the right uh, uh, issue here. Let's say the government were to say, uh, we think it's just not right that people are spending money on abortions or spending so much money on hiring lawyers or spending money on educating their kids. So we're just going to say you can't spend any money on abortion. At most, you can spend $20 on abortion. At most, you can spend $1,000 
to send your kid to a private school. At most, you can spend $10,000 on a lawyer, all for the sake of equality, let's say, or for other low, uh, noble goals. I don't think we'd say, well, sure, that's okay. Money's not an abortion. Money's not an education. Money's not a lawyer. I think we'd recognize that limiting the ability to spend money uh, in order to exercise a constitutional right is, generally speaking, a limit on that constitutional right. Uh, so that's why I think Jeff and I would agree that the court has been right to say that these kinds of restrictions are presumptively unconstitutional. It's just that Jeff thinks that the, this restriction can be rebutted in this excuse me, this presumption can be rebutted uh, because of, uh, uh, of uh, supposedly the great harm that this is uh, uh, doing to, to American democracy. A second point I think is worth keeping in mind is one of the things for which people have always spent money on uh, uh, is newspapers. And newspapers have always been, in fact, uh, in the past much more so than today, a very disproportional voices of the rich who own the newspapers. Uh, in public debate. Uh, so let's say somebody in 1950, let's say again, back when newspapers really were king, said, well, this isn't fair. This isn't, it isn't fair that a, that a newspaper editor would have special access to, uh, to a politician. The politician would return the newspaper editor's calls and, uh, and wouldn't uh, return others, or maybe not even editor, but publisher, the owner of the newspaper as I'm sure that the politicians were very interested in what the local newspaper was, was saying because they wanted to get good coverage from the newspaper. So as a result, we're going to say that the newspaper cannot spend more than $1,000 covering, uh, uh, covering a candidate. That if you spend more than $1,000 in newsprint costs, in, um, uh, in uh, salaries and such, which would add up very, very quickly, uh, then in that case, that, there's a cap. And you can't do that anymore if you spend more. It's a crime. Because we believe in equality, we don't think it's fair that the newspaper publisher has this extra, uh, extra power. I think we'd say, well, that's unconstitutional. That's a violation of the freedom of the press. And the freedom of the press necessarily involves the spending of money to make your press operate. Well, all that the Supreme Court's uh, um, independent expenditure decisions have, have done is they have said that just as, as newspapers are entitled to express themselves, so other entities both nonprofits uh, and uh, for-profit corporations and just rich individuals and unions, they're entitled to express themselves, too, uh, that they can, uh, even if they don't own a newspaper, they can rent space in a newspaper. That's really all an ad in a newspaper is, is you're being the newspaper publisher for that one page. Uh, they may not own a television station, but they, take, but they buy space in the television station. I have yet to see an explanation uh, of why it is that newspapers should have these special rights that other speakers don't. Now, some people say the free press clause protects the press. Well, I, I, I've looked into this, and for basically since the time of the framing, the freedom of the press was understood as the freedom of all to use the press, the printing press, and by extension, mass communication technology, and not the freedom of one special uh, uh, industry or one special occupation. And if I'm right on that, and I would hope I think on this particular narrow point, Jeff, and I would agree, uh, then I don't see why it is that uh, newspapers should, uh, should have special rights uh, to speak out about uh, uh, campaigns, and not just uh, uh, newspapers, but magazines as well, and other, uh, uh, other organizations that are uh, uh, obviously uh, and, and, and confessedly uh, partisan on such matters, uh, and uh, while other speakers are legally barred from doing that. So that, that's my view of the matter. And I should also say, if you look at this particular election cycle, Jeb Bush, 
who, as I understand it, is the best funded of the Republican candidates, uh, is basically in practice nowhere to be seen in the polls. Donald Trump is a very rich man, but he spent very little money on this. In fact, what he has done is he's invested the name recognition he's gotten from media appearances. Again, it's it's uh, that fame and uh, access to the media that gives you uh, gives you more coverage, and he's turned it into coverage by the media, even though most of the media is unsympathetic to him. Um, so I, 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 I agree with Jeff that uh, there is a cost to this, that there are dangers to this, that there are problems caused uh, by uh, uh, there being so much money in politics. Uh, and uh, I just don't think that those problems can justify restricting people from spending their own resources to express their views, uh, just as I don't think the threat of terrorism is sufficient to justify restricting people uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, expressing their extremist views. Uh, obviously, I don't view that there's a moral equivalence between the two, but I do think there should be a constitutional equivalence. Well, thanks much for that. Obviously, a large subject for a future debate, but we are out of time, so it is time for closing arguments uh, in this wonderful conversation. Uh, Jeff, in just a few sentences, uh, why is the First Amendment principle you've described, that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence, important, and why should Americans care about it? Well, it's important, I think, for the reasons we began with, which is that um, a, a well-functioning democracy uh, requires the ability of individuals to hear ideas and arguments that inform them in a way that enables them to vote uh, in, a, in an intelligent and thoughtful manner, and that for the government to intervene in that process uh, is to invite distortion and corruption and manipulation that is directly incompatible with a well-functioning democracy. And beyond that, there are other, other arguments that, that we identified about the importance of free speech beyond the political and the importance of free speech to the individual's own sense of autonomy and dignity. But fundamentally, um, if we had a society, in my view, in which the government could pick and choose which ideas individuals were allowed to uh, say and which ones they were not allowed to say, uh, most of us would not want to live here very long. Beautiful. Uh, Eugene, why is the First Amendment uh, important and why should Americans care about it? I really can't add anything to what Jeff said. I think he put it very, very well. Uh, unsurprising from someone who's been uh, uh, one of the leading both scholars of free speech and advocates for broad free speech in the country for a good deal longer than I've been working. So uh, I'm going to join, uh, join my uh, learned colleague in this, uh, in his opinion. Thank you for exercising your right to remain silent and for a really... <laughs> energetic and... And to associate, right? To associate. <laughs> Even better. There's lots right. of the First Amendment that uh, can cover this. Um, it's just a beautiful example of the fact that these basic constitutional principles can bind people of different perspectives. And ladies and gentlemen, you can see those different perspectives at the Interactive Constitution. Check it out and let us know what you think. Jeff Stone and Eugene Volek, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks very much for organizing it. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Joshua Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. I want to know what you think of the podcast. Email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. 
Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in beautiful Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, my friends, despite our inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.